Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Um, finally, would you join me in welcoming Johnny as he comes to speak to us? Thank you, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. How are we doing? Good. It's really nice to see you. It's always nice to be on home turf uh, when you come to speak. Um, it's really just so lovely to see you all. Uh, as Georgia was saying, this is just such a joy to get to do life and community and church with all of you. Uh, we really do love you guys, and we don't say that as a cliche. We love coming each week and doing church with you, so thanks for being here. Uh, it would be pretty weird if it was just me. Um, in preparing for today's talk, uh, I've really just been asking God, God, what do you want to say to us as a community? What is it you want to be speaking to us about in this current season that we're in? And one of the things I felt him really prompt me to share, and one of the things I'm really passionate about personally, is to reform the thinking of our culture that is trying to expedite things that can actually only be done through the process of waiting. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in one of the fastest-paced cultures to have ever graced the face of planet Earth. I mean, life can be fast sometimes. We're in this process of technological revolution. Let me just start by saying I love tech. I really do, particularly if it's got a Samsung label on it. I love it even more. But sometimes technology just has this way of making everything seem more efficient. If anything takes time or effort, we try and boil it right down and make it simpler, make it quicker make it easier, make it cheaper. And so we no longer cook food, we microwave food, or perhaps if you're a student, you just open the tin and eat it, I don't know. If, uh, if you're like me, you no longer write letters, we no longer lick envelopes. That was a weird thing we used to do, isn't it? We used to lick envelopes. That taste was awful. Put a stamp on it and send a letter. No, we, we email or we text and we expect that immediate response, that immediate gratification. And when you look at the world of texting and instant messaging, I tell you, the stats are boggling. Texting is, on average, they say, 10 times quicker than phone calls. That makes sense. The average text is read in under five seconds and responded to in under 90. It's no wonder, then, that worldwide, over 15 million text messages are sent every minute. And when you throw in WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, over 60 billion messages are sent every single day. So surely, right, with all these messages, over 10 messages for every person on the face of the planet, surely we are all deeply connected, right? No, unfortunately not. Alas, the stats around loneliness that came out from the Office of National Statistics just last year said that in 2017, more than 5% of adults here in the UK reported feeling lonely always or often. And young adults aged 16 to 24, making up a huge majority of us here today, reported feeling lonely 20% more than those in older age groups. Our need for instant gratification and an immediate response is driving the sense of waiting further and further from our everyday lives, waiting for something deeper and truer, pursuing something more satisfying than can be grasped in the immediacy of any given moment. And this pace of life, this relative rapidity or density of experiences, meanings, perceptions, and activities, it's not even a uniquely modern phenomenon. This is something humanity has been wrestling with for generations. A brilliant writer called William Gregg wrote in 1877, he said, beyond doubt, the most salient characteristic of life in this latter portion 
of the 19th century is its speed, what we may call its hurry, the rate at which we move, the high pressure at which we work, and the question to be considered is whether it is worth the price that we pay for it. But as culture speeds up as it inevitably does, we have to understand that the kingdom and the faith journey never moves at the rhythm of the culture. And there are some things in our walk with God, there are some things on our faith journey that are just going to have to be done the slow, old-fashioned, inconvenient way. You're welcome. <laughs> Isn't that good news? I actually think it really is good news, and I'm hopefully going to try and convince you of that today. So today, I want to introduce you to an idea called the process. I want to talk to you about something called the process that exists between promise and purpose. And yes, rather conveniently, they all begin with the letter P. The process that sits between the promise of God and the fulfillment of that promise inside of purpose. And as a church, we are really passionate and we talk a lot about serving our city. It's the strap line on our website if you have a look at it. Serving our city by working for the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal of London. A sense of purpose and a sense of call to make our bit of this world just a little bit more like heaven. And I look around this room today and I just I see a roomful of potential and possibility. I mean, I see so many of us who are passionate about perhaps working in a specific sector. Perhaps we're passionate about helping a particular group of people or serving a particular need. Maybe even some of us are passionate about serving in God's church and seeing the spiritual renewal of this city. All of us carry promises, dreams, and hopes. But whatever it is we're passionate about, whatever it is we are feeling a sense of call towards, in between that promise of God and the fulfillment of that promise inside of purpose, there is a long, challenging, and sometimes confusing journey called the process. And you see, the thing about promises is promises come in seed form. You don't get a promise fully grown. Promises come as seeds. And on the surface, it's oftentimes pretty difficult to even guess what on earth that seed is going to grow into. Okay, a little bit of audience participation time. And to get you interested, there is chocolate on offer. Can't say fairer than that. Um, an image is going to come up on the screen, I hope. Someone tell me, what does this grow into? Who said it first? Who said it first? Some back corner, back corner. Dana, come and get it. Come and get a chocolate. Shall I throw it? Oh, nailed it. Okay, perfect. Yes, uh, let's see the picture of Bob with his sunflower. There he is. It grows into a sunflower. Perfect. Uh, next image. Maybe hands up. What does this grow into? It's not a pumpkin. Any other volunteers? Chili, not a chili. No, keep going. No. Oh my gosh, did I make this too hard? Uh, think small, round, red. Tomato. Steve said it. Share and share alike. Okay, perfect. Yes, it was a tomato. Uh, next image, please. These seeds. Not an oak tree. Did Liam say sycamore all the way at the... Oh, Rachel, I'm sorry, Liam said it. Liam said it. Oh! Don't tell the owners of the building. I'll get in so much trouble. Yes, it's a sycamore tree. Okay, and last and not least, before I break something else, what are these? Pumpkin seeds. I think at the back, it's going. Oh, that'll do. I'm so glad I didn't hurt someone. Gosh, that could have gone awfully wrong. Yes, promises, folks. 
Feel free to share, they're quite large bars. Um, promises come in the form of seeds. Promises do not come from God fully grown. They come in seed form. And it is only over time, as days of sunshine and days of rain come and go, as the warmth of summer turns to the transition of autumn, turns to the harshness of winter and the newness of spring, that those seeds start to turn into trees, or pumpkins in this case. But they start to grow, they start to develop. And the journey, the process, is actually sometimes more important than the end destination. Because it's in the process of life that character is developed. It's in the process that integrity is forged within us. And it is in the process that we grow, we develop maturity, and we become all that God intended each one of us to be. And if you look at every individual's life throughout Scripture, a promise comes from God then this crazy journey and process typically ensues until finally, if they can endure the process, they step into the fulfillment of that promise inside of purpose. If you take the example of Joseph, who knows the story of Joseph a little bit? He's a guy a little bit younger than some of us. He's a teenager, and he's just one of these dreamer types. You know, he just spends all day dreaming, away with the fairies, dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. And God speaks to him through his dreams, gives him essentially a promise that God is going to raise him up into a position of influence and that his brothers are going to bow down before him. Now, how many people know that when Joseph wakes up from this dream, he doesn't find his brothers bowing down around his bed? Now, he actually goes back to doing what he was doing normally. He makes the error of telling his brothers that they should all be banged down before him. They sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery in Egypt, this guy's Potiphar's house, where he works tirelessly to gain influence in Potiphar's house. He then gets accused of rape and adultery of Potiphar's wife, so he gets thrown in prison for years until finally he interprets the dream of the king of Egypt, and God elevates him to the second most powerful man in that nation. Now, how many people know... When Joseph got the dream, nobody told him about any of that. Nobody told him that he was going to be a slave. Nobody told him that he was going to be in jail for years. Nobody told him about the process. If you take uh, the young David, the young shepherd boy David, he's just this worshipping heart out in the fields with a bunch of sheep. Samuel comes knocking. He's looking for a king for Israel. David has got five older brothers who are all far more qualified, far more equipped for the job than him. But Samuel says, nope. This is the guy, David, you're going to be king. And you know what happens? Nothing. He goes right back to doing exactly what he was doing the day before. He takes care of sheep. He, at various points, fights off lions and bears until eventually he takes a packed lunch to his better qualified brothers on the front line of Israel's army. And there's this giant Goliath, and no one's willing to fight him. But David's like, do you know what? I took down a lion and a bear. I can take this guy. So he takes down Goliath, chops off Goliath's head, and eventually ends up becoming king of Israel. But again, how many people know when Samuel came knocking, Samuel didn't tell David any of that. David had to endure the process. And it's really interesting to me that you can even trace this in the life of Jesus. It's clear to me reading the various different gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that Jesus pretty much knew exactly who he was and exactly what he was called to do as a 12-year-old boy. You find him sitting in the temple courts, talking to the temple elders and leaders, and he had a pretty good understanding that he was doing his father's business, which means he knew he was the son of God, and he knew what he was here to do. And then his parents come and find him, and for 18 years, between the age of Jesus at 12 to when he began his life in ministry and John the Baptist baptized him age 30, we hear very little about Jesus. 
The most likely scenario is he was with his dad, Joseph, in the carpenter's workshop in obscurity, learning to make, I don't know, furniture or wooden posts or whatever carpenters make. Jesus himself endured a process of waiting. And so today we're going to look at this whole idea of the process and we're going to look at the story and the life of Paul as our example. So if you have your Bible with, uh, Bible with you, please do turn to the book of Acts and chapter 27. If you don't have your Bible or an app on your phone, uh, the words will come up behind me. A little bit of brief context for the passage we're going to explore today. Uh, Paul is a prisoner at this point in time. Not ideal. He's a prisoner on board a ship that is bound for Italy. He's hanging out with a load of other criminals on this ship. He's carrying a promise from God that he is to go to Rome, speak to Caesar, share the gospel there. And they find themselves on this boat in the middle of a terrible storm, verse 39 of Acts chapter 27. It says, When it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas meet, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. Verse 44, And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Paul in this story has been unjustly imprisoned, and he's been placed on this corn ship that is headed to Italy. And according to elsewhere in the text, we find there are some 250 other people on this ship with Paul, most of whom were criminals. I mean, these guys are bona fide thieving criminals. And it would seem at first glance that Paul is on a ship he's not really supposed to be on, and he's hanging out with a group of people that he's not really supposed to be hanging out with. Now, Paul hasn't done anything specifically wrong. He's not being punished. He's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he's surrounded by a group of people that he's probably really not enjoying being around. And I mean, this is Paul we're talking about, right? This is road to Damascus. God knocks him off his donkey, arrests his heart, commissions him to lead and plant churches, wrote most of the New Testament. This is Paul. I mean, you talk about anyone who might have felt like they had the right at some point to say, God, this isn't fair. You know, you, you knocked me off my donkey for this. You arrested my heart for this. God, this isn't fair. And the truth is, folks, you and I are going to have opportunities in our life where it'll feel like we want to turn to God and say, God, this just isn't fair. But I love that Paul never took the attitude as to whether he was being treated fairly. Instead, he always looked for an opportunity, even in the middle of life's storms, for God to work in and through his life. I remember um, many years ago, actually, I say many, not that long, but almost a decade ago now, actually, 
um, several years ago. I was, uh, I'd come out of a past relationship and it had been really hard. It had just been really messy, really painful, and I was tired. I was exhausted. I definitely would have described life as a bit of a struggle at that point in time. And I can remember in that same season, I had started to develop um, a sort of double vision squint. And it came on very, very slowly, very gradually, and essentially I was just a bit cross-eyed. Just couldn't, couldn't see anything beyond what was immediately in my face. And I remember going to the GP, and she, uh, she got me a couple of referrals. And uh, eventually, on the day that I got sort of total finished closure on that past relationship, that season was done. On the same day, I'm sat in a hospital having got this referral. And I'm sat in front of a consultant who's doing a few examinations. And he sort of looks very quizzically at me, calls in a colleague. Another consultant doctor comes through, does a few more exams, looks slightly worried, calls in the consultant professor. And so I've got these three guys sort of looking at me very close up. And the long and the short of it is I'm sat in this windowless room with these three guys being told that in all probability, based on the symptoms I'm exhibiting, the three likely outcomes of what I'm experiencing are either a brain tumor, a neurodegenerative disorder, or a sort of really aggressive viral condition like hepatitis or AIDS. And I'm not gonna lie, I didn't like any of the options. I was like, <laughs> is there a door number four? Like, and I honestly remember sitting there in total shock. I didn't even know what to say. I remember walking out of the hospital on Queen Square, sitting on a park bench and just feeling like dead weight. And honestly, in that moment, there was so much in me that wanted to say, God, this isn't fair. Like, I've just come through all this stuff and I really tried to journey that whole season as well as I could. And now this? And I remember feeling lots of things and I started to talk to God about how I was feeling. I started to talk to him about the struggle. I called friends who prayed with me there on the phone, called people here in this church who prayed with me. And what began for me was a season of, gosh, lumbar punctures, MRI scans, CT scans, diagnosis, so many different things. Um, and my experience in that moment was not instantaneous healing, though many people prayed for me to be healed, and though I've seen God heal me and others in other situations. In this instance, that wasn't my experience. I didn't even experience a great sense of God's presence with me on that bench. I didn't feel much at all. But through the days and weeks and months that followed, all I can describe is that I knew God was with me. There was one particular MRI scan I can remember being in, and they're doing an MRI scan of my brain because that's what they think is all going wrong, and it may still be, I don't know. But anyway, they, they clamp your head so your head is fixed, and MRIs are loud things like kugung, 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 and they start going around and taking it. And honestly, I was pretty scared. Like, I was just, I was afraid in there. And it was almost as if, as I shot up a prayer of, God, I just need to know you with me, it was like the noise began to become quieter. And I don't know to this day whether the noise actually was getting quieter or whether it was just my perception of it. But all I knew was that I felt God close to me as I walked through that. Long story short, I had surgery a little while ago. My eyes are now working fine. It's fantastic. Praise God, none of the diagnoses that they thought were actually the ones that it ended up being. All I know is that he was with me as I navigated that. Now, back to Paul. Uh, indulge me for a little minute. This may be boring, but it's interesting to me. Uh, scholars and historians believe that the ship, the boat that Paul was on, there it is, what a nice looking ship. Uh, they thought that it was about 50 meters long, about 12 meters wide, and it would have required at least 10 meters of clear water just to float. You gotta think with ancient primitive tools, this is an impressive piece of nautical engineering. Imagine how long it would have taken to create this thing. 
And now imagine that you are Paul. You've got some sense of what God has called you to do, and you know that this ship is going to Italy. Yes, you're in prison. Yes, you're in chains. But at least the boat is heading in roughly the right direction. And then in the midst of the storm, you find the very thing that might take you from your promise to your purpose is being ripped apart beneath you. And in that moment, Paul has a decision to make. His decision is, am I going to get bitter, angry, and disillusioned because I'm in the process of losing my boat? Or am I going to make up my mind that even when the boat is falling apart, God is with me, he still loves me, and his promise towards me is still intact? And it's really interesting to me how Paul approaches this whole shipwreck scenario. If you look a few verses earlier in your Bibles in Acts 27, from verse 22, Paul says, And now I urge you, talking to the other men on the ship, I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart. Notice that again. For I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is, guys... Guys, the, the promise that God has spoken to me, it's still secure. It's still safe. I don't quite understand how this is all going to work out, but the promise is still intact. However, we are going to have to endure a shipwreck. So guys, take heart. He says that twice, take heart. And if we, if we can keep our hearts right in the midst of the process, in the midst of the shipwrecks of life where things don't make sense, then God is going to reveal even more of his goodness, even more of his faithfulness, and even more of his glory than if it had simply been plain sailing. Strangely, that is the goodness of God. It was the, the verse that Rich read out actually in worship earlier or spoke out, that God is working all things together for good for those who are called in Christ Jesus. God works things, he redeems things, he restores things and makes them better than they ever would have been before. He tells the men twice to take heart. Another translation says it, don't lose heart. More than anything else, my personal experience has been times of difficulty in the process can cause me to try and lose heart. Times of pain and loss can cause us to become bitter. Times of conflict and failure can cause us to become disillusioned. Proverbs 4 puts it like this, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And Jesus, talking to his disciples in John 16, says it beautifully like this. He says, I have told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Covent Garden Service, when things are hard, take heart. Take heart. God is with you in the midst of whatever it is you're facing and he will never leave you nor forsake you. And what we have to understand about God's uh, alpha and omega nature, alpha and omega being the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, his beginning and end nature, is that God is already on the other side of whatever it is we are facing, and he is calling us through. He's saying, guys, I've already overcome this. Take heart. Take heart. I've overcome this. I know it hurts right now. I'm right there with you, but come on. I see what this is like on the other side. Take heart. Don't lose heart in the process. And despite everything Paul was going through in our story in Acts 27, he never lost sight of the prize. He somehow knew what he was going through was going to be worth it. 
And you see, the prize is not anything that this world has to offer. The prize for Paul was not going to Rome and seeing Caesar. The prize for us is not a job or a degree. It's not a relationship or a position of status. It's not even physical healing, emotional wholeness, or financial breakthrough, or whatever it else we may be facing. The prize is Jesus himself in all his fullness. He gives himself freely. Paul had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And I tell you, when you truly see him, when you see how good he is, how perfect he is in all his ways like we were singing, Jesus really is enough. So for Paul in in our story, the question arises at this moment, okay, dude, how will you get from the island you've been shipwrecked on, the island of Malta, how will you get from there to Rome? You've lost your boat. What are you going to do? Let's pick up the story again, starting in verse 1 of Acts 28. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. Verse 5, I absolutely love, but he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. I mean, Paul is having a bad day, right? This is like, he, he's hanging out with a load of prisoners on the boat, he's in chains, he gets shipwrecked, survives that, sort of drags his wet, tired body onto the beach of an island, thinks, I know what I'm going to do, I'm going to build a fire, and he gets bitten by a poisonous viper. I mean, that's just about as bad and sucky a day as you can have. And Paul is on this island in this moment, having a really rubbish time of it. And I'm aware that really Paul needs to just crack on with the mission, right? He needs to fix things, get on, get over it, move on. He needs a new boat. He needs to get back on the journey towards Rome, carry on. But Paul had a revelation that there was one need more apparent and one thing he needed more immediately than a boat. And the one thing he needed more than anything else in that moment was a fire. Instead of a practical plan to fix the problems we face, instead of a scheme to get from promise to purpose, what you and I really need is the fire of personal intimacy and relationship with Jesus that will satisfy us whatever it is we're going through. In building a fire in that moment, something Paul had probably done hundreds of times before, Paul wasn't trying to fix all his problems. He wasn't trying to answer all of his questions He was choosing to be still, and he was choosing faith, I think. As Elizabeth Elliot puts it so beautifully, she says, faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. Paul didn't have all the answers to his questions. I don't know all the answers to all the questions I have, but what I do know is that I want to be burning in here with my relationship with Jesus I don't know where life will take me and I don't know what future struggles lie ahead, but what I do know is that I want to be on fire. And I believe God is, metaphorically speaking, looking for people who in the midst of the storms of life will start fires. It may be raining, but if the fire's burning hot enough, then it actually doesn't matter. It may be dark where you are today, but if the fire is burning brightly enough, it doesn't matter. 
It may be windy, but if the fire is burning fiercely enough, the fire will get you through. You see, whenever we find ourselves in difficult situations that we just don't understand, if you are anything at all like me, then the temptation is oftentimes to get very practically minded. Let me try and fix this. Let me try and figure out a way through this. Let me try and take control of this. The bold act of faith sometimes is just to be still, is to sit with God by the fire and to give it all to him as we trust him with the outcome. God is looking for a community of people who in the midst of storms will start fires. Now, do you, um, do you remember the story uh, in the Gospels where... Uh, Jesus has uh, died and been resurrected, and the disciples have gone back to fishing, right? They're they're pretty disillusioned at this point in the story. Like, they walked with Jesus in person for years, then he died, then he rose again and came back to them, and now he's ascended into heaven. It's, It's just all really confusing to them. They don't really know what's going on. And so they've gone back to what they knew how to do, in theory. They've gone back to fishing. And they're fishing out on the lake, and Jesus shows up on the bank. They don't actually know it's Jesus, but Jesus shows up on the bank, and he calls out to them. He's like, hey, guys, have you any fish? Or one translation actually puts it, have you any meat? The original word there, have you any meat? And he didn't call out to them and say, hey, guys, you having a nice time? It's me, remember me, Jesus. No, I think it's interesting. He called out to them and said, hey, guys, have you any meat? What did he mean when he said that? I think the disciples would have traveled back in their minds to a story you find in John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. And the disciples go out to get some lunch. They come back and say, Jesus, are you not hungry? Do you not need some food? And he said, no, I'm not hungry. He says, I have meat. I have sustenance that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to finish it. And I believe when he showed up on the bank to the disciples after the resurrection and he called out and he said, have you any meat? They would have gone back in their minds and they would have realized, do you know what he's asking us? He's asking us, are you doing the will of the Father who sent you, and are you finishing it? And I love the gut-raw honesty of their answer. They just say, no. Have you got anything on that boat that's sustaining you and fulfilling you? No. Have you caught anything? No. And so you know the story, if you've read it before, Jesus calls out to them again and says, okay, throw your nets on the other side, and they throw down their nets, and this huge catch of fish comes in to the point that the boat is about to sink and the nets are breaking, and suddenly John, by revelation, realizes, wait a minute, that's not, that's not just a man on the bank, that must be Jesus, right? So Peter girds up his fisherman's cloak, he dives into the water, swims, leaves everything behind, swims to the shore, crawls himself out onto the bank, and what does he find? He finds Jesus sitting by a fire, saying to him, come on, Peter, come and sit down, have breakfast. There's warmth here by the fire. I know you've got questions. I know it's confusing, Peter, but just come sit. Come sit with me by the fire. The fire of God's presence, of just being with him, satisfies the human soul like nothing else can. We can make ourselves busy fishing, or whatever it is we, it is we spend our time on, whatever vocation or hobby we give our time to. We can fill our lives with all sorts of wonderful things, but really the only thing that will satisfy us is the fire of God's presence. In our story, it might have first appeared that Paul's greatest need was a boat, but I believe Paul's greatest need was time by the fire with Jesus. And I sense God saying to us as a community, 
in the season we're in and everything we're facing, I think even if things haven't worked out the way you thought they would, even if you're sat here today and you have questions, you have all sorts of questions about life and what's going on and what you're facing and why this, Jesus, and why that? Why did I have to go through that? Why am I facing this right now? Whatever it is we are each facing, there is fulfillment to be found in the fire of a personal relationship with God who journeys with us, who never leaves us or forsakes us and walks with us through the process of life. Now, Paul has got to find some wood to put on the fire, right? He's got to find some fuel for the flames. And uh, a little bit of uh, history about Malta will teach you that Malta doesn't have a huge abundance of wood growing naturally on it. There's just, there's not much available fuel if you want to be starting a fire, Paul and the islanders. And the Bible also says that there was a strong rain or a present rain. So whatever kindling or driftwood Paul might have been able to grab would have already been soaked through, right? Now, shipbuilding technology in Paul's day and age involved coating large portions of the timber in pitch or tar to make it waterproof. Not only is it waterproof, it's also incredibly flammable while wet. Now, you're just going to have to go with me on a little bit of poetic license here, but my thinking is if you just broke up a 12-meter by 10-meter deep boat of wood that is covered in flammable material, then you ought to just grab some of those pieces that will be washing up on the shore and throw them on the fire. Because, I mean, those things are going to burn. Those things are really going to burn. And metaphorically and even prophetically speaking, I think this is a picture of perhaps taking our brokenness, taking the broken pieces of things that have fallen apart, and rather than trying to carry them around with us, because Lord knows I've done that and it just weighs me down, but rather than carrying around pieces of things that have fallen apart and things that have broken, we put them on the fire of our relationship with Jesus. We give them to God. We trust him to heal us and to comfort us. And we allow those broken things to actually fuel the fire of our relationship with him. You see, our pain, our disappointment, our confusion at times is actually an incredible fuel source for our relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves it when we're honest and real with him. The amazing thing about Jesus is you just get to sit with him exactly as you are. And if you're struggling today, you don't have to put on a facade Church isn't about putting on a show. You get to be gut honest, real with God and just say, God, this is hard. And I don't understand this. I don't understand why some of this is happening. The more real we are with him, the more closely I believe we sense his presence. The problem is, at least in this story, as soon as we start burning things, or at least as soon as Paul does, all of a sudden this snake pops out. All of a sudden, this picture of the enemy jumps out and latches onto his hand. Paul is carrying around armfuls of wood that a snake is hidden inside, but he never sees that snake come out and attack him until he starts to try and put it on the fire. And honestly, again, this has been my experience, but when what I'm carrying, some of the brokenness, some of the pain, some of the disappointment, when I start to actually give that over to God, there is always something that the enemy will try and do to make me stop doing that. There's always an opportunity to back out and be like, no, I'm just going to hold on to that. I'm going to hold on to that bitterness. I'm going to hold on to that disappointment. I'm going to hold on to where I was let down or betrayed. But actually, it's only when we let go of these things, we put them at Jesus' feet, we sit with him by the fire. On the other side of that moment, there is freedom. There is liberty. There is healing. There is wholeness. And the enemy will do anything to keep us back from all of that. On the other side of that, there is hope. 
There's hope for tomorrow, and there's a peace that surpasses all understanding, surpasses needing to know even the reason why. It is for freedom, Galatians 5 says, that Christ has set us free. Don't let anything you're carrying hold you back from experiencing that in fullness. And the thing is, if you follow the story right through to its completion, if you track the rest of it through in Acts 28, which you, I encourage you to do in your own time, you'll find that Paul eventually does get his boat. He gets a new boat, he ends up in Rome, and he ends up in front of Caesar, doing everything that God promised him. God was faithful to his word and took Paul exactly where he said he was going to take him. But not before Paul actually went on a bit of an adventure on the island. He goes on this crazy adventure, meets this guy called Publius, heals almost everyone that's sick on the island, just displays the love and majesty of God in that place. And I don't know, I don't know what Paul was thinking at any point in this story. But I wonder whether when he was shipwrecked, he was probably thinking, oh God, do I really have to be here on this island? Come on, you've called me to Rome. I've got important things to be doing. Why here? Why this island with these people that I don't really know, don't have anything to do with? But I tell you what, I bet the sick people on that island were really pleased Paul got shipwrecked there. When they suddenly find that he had answers for them and had the Spirit of God within him, I think they were really pleased. And I don't know if maybe you feel like you've been shipwrecked on a bit of an island. I don't know if London was always the dream or you just ended up here. I don't know if this church service was always the dream or if you just ended up here. It may feel like an island or it may feel like a part of purpose. Whichever way, there is purpose to be found here, right where we are. There's unexpected purpose around every corner of the walk with Jesus. In every moment of the process, there are opportunities to love people. There are opportunities to be a shoulder for a friend in need. There are opportunities to encourage someone, to spur one another on, and to just journey through this process of life together. Um, Georgie and I have recently moved flat. We've moved into a new flat uh, up in Clerkenwell. And we're just on the edge of the Finsbury Estate, which is this massive estate in Clerkenwell, and we love it. And uh, we're getting to know our neighbors. And one of our neighbors is absolutely fantastic. She's called Shushu. And she's not just fantastic for her name, but she's uh, half Egyptian, half Sudanese, and she just loves to cook for people. And at the moment, those people are us. <laughs> and so uh, Georgie and I were in the garden. We were painting the really grubby walls white. And this little head pops through the hedge. No joke. This little face pops through the hedge. Oh, my gosh. And she's like, uh, are you hungry? I'm like... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she hands through this Tupperware of the most incredible chicken meatballs. I'm just thinking, this is great. <laughs> and so anyway, Shushu has just been the most amazing gift. We've been getting to know her a little bit. And the, her love language clearly is food. And I'm like, all the better for it. More Lord. More of that Lord. Um, but literally last night, just last night, uh, she knocked on the door with food, uh, with tabbouleh. And handed, I was like, thanks. This is wonderful. Uh, we need to start reciprocating this. Um, but she knocked on the door, and I just asked her, how's she doing? I was like, how are you doing? And she said, uh, she's like, doing okay. Not, not great. My, um, she said, my nephew died just this week. I was like, oh, that's, that's rough. And she was like, yeah, he was only 25. I was like, flip, that's younger than me. And she started to open up about how her nephew had uh, been born with uh, basic... Uh, problems, disabilities, oxygen deficiency at birth made him really struggle throughout most of his life, and he passed away just this last week. And I didn't have any big answers for Shushu, but I did get to share a real moment with her in the midst of her process. We talked a little about grief, we talked a little about processing that, and she opened up about how most of the day where she had 
very kindly come over and cooked for us. She just spent crying. And the reality is we do not know the very people on our doorstep. I mean, even some of the people in this room, we just don't know what people are going through. But all I want to say is whatever state of this process, this process towards purpose you feel like you're on, there are opportunities to show and minister the love of God all around us. So very quickly, as I wrap things up for today, I want to suggest three practical things. Let's make this practical. Three practical things that we can do as we journey from the promises of God towards purpose and all that he has for each one of us. Number one, I want to say take time. Take time. Psalm 46, verse 10, one of my absolute favorite verses in all of Scripture, says, be still and know that I am God. We live in a busy world, as I started this talk by saying, there's so many temptations, so many things vying for our attention and our time. Can I encourage you, take the time to be still. Take the time to be still and to listen to God. God is speaking. He is whispering all the time. And the more we're still, the more I believe we hear him. Listen out for whispers in our present about what he might be promising you now. And also take the time to be still and remind yourself of things maybe that God has spoken to you about in the past. So number one, take time. Secondly, take heart. We heard Paul say it twice. Heard about it in Proverbs and Jesus talking about in John 16. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And guys, can I encourage you, be honest with God. It's still one of my biggest journeys to be really honest with God about where I'm at and what I'm struggling with. But part of guarding our hearts, part of taking heart, is about bringing the reality of our emotional experience into our faith walk. None of us have this all figured out. And I mean none of us. We are all on this journey together. And the more real we are with God, the more we guard our hearts. And secondly, I want to say invite God intentionally into the process with you. Certainly for me, I love to think I'm very self-sufficient sometimes, like I can manage things, I can control things. It's a real conscious effort for me when I'm struggling to actually allow God in, to sort of open the door and be like, okay, God, I I just need you to come into this because it just doesn't make sense right now. So take time, take heart, and then thirdly and finally, build a fire. Spend time just being with Jesus. Spend time essentially by the campfire with God, just hanging out. There's various practical things you can do to build a fire. You can pray, talk to him, and listen in response. You can worship. I mean, if you play the guitar or something, cool, but otherwise just stick on your favorite worship album or read a psalm or whatever it is that just engages you in an atmosphere of worship. Pray, worship, read your Bible. The Bible is full of stories of men and women of faith who are trying to figure this journey out. It's full of challenge and it's full of encouragement. Pray, worship, read your Bible, and develop what uh, Bill Johnson describes as a personal history with God. You know, the reality is in relationships, no one can do it for you. In this world of trying to find efficiencies, you can't delegate the responsibility for relationship to anyone else. At least it would be pretty weird if you did. If I tried to delegate my husband responsibilities with Georgie to someone else, I mean, it's just all sorts of nightmare. No one else can have a relationship with Jesus for you other than you. So spend time with him. One final quote to finish with. I wonder if uh, Rich and Lucy come and join me at the front. One final slightly tongue-in-cheek quote to finish with from our friend Bear Grylls, who uh, if any of you have done the Alpha course will have seen his face popping up with various people. He says, my favorite moments 
when the sun's out, there's a fire going and I've got a snake on the barbecue. Yes, Bear. Join me in standing, will you? We're going to pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.